Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are once again joined by our good friend, Bridget Todd. Thanks for being with us, Bridget. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. And happy holidays, by the way. Happy holidays to you two. Are y'all about to get into some holiday fun? (laughs) I, you know what? I think I, so I cannot, when I get presents, and and Annie can attest to this, like when I receive the presents that I'm about to give people, I almost can't wait. So I'm like, I've been kind of slowly handing out gifts, even though it's not really Christmas time. I did this for my post carrier and I was like, oh, Christmas is two weeks away. But I went ahead and gave it to him. I was like... That's, I'm a little eager. So, yes, that is my holiday shenanigans. Yeah, That's I mean, nice, though. <laughs> we're already in the holiday season, you know. I think a gift is acceptable anytime. Oh, yeah. That's fair. Especially now. Especially right. now. Right. I was like, maybe this will help before. But, yeah, I realized yesterday as I was doing things, I was like, it's about two weeks away from Christmas. I probably should slow down. <laughs> No. <laughs> See, I'm like, I'm normally much more holiday spirit. I, w- I don't know if it's even that, but I guess because I go out more, I'm doing more stuff. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I should be doing this holiday stuff. And I'm in my apartment, so it's like I don't know what the holdup is. <laughs> but <laughs> I put up my little tree. Right. What Aww. about you, Bridget? Do you, have you done your uh, holiday starting traditions? None. I, am, I have to say, I am like a little bit of a Grinch historically. Oh, yeah. Like I'm not really big into the holidays. Um, this time around, I don't know. This is the first time I've ever... It's weird. I have always hated celebrating the holidays. And when, as it creeps in and, you know, after Halloween, when they start the Christmas music, I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, right. This is the only time that I've been like, I want, I want things to be festive. So <laughs> I've started yeah. a little bit. I've already started watching Lifetime movies where, mm. you know, a busy city woman meets a hometown holiday right. hunk. I've already, <laughs> I've already seen a couple of those. So I'm getting into the yeah. spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So we are doing our movies based on the holidays, essentially, or somewhat themed. And we are now watching, well, we finished, both of us, Sleepless in Seattle, and you've got Mill. And I'm like, okay, my next, because that's not in my traditions, but we watched it so we could talk about it it's coming, in upcoming episodes. But now I'm like, oh, I'm really realizing my holiday movies are romantic comedies. Yeah. And that's not You're my personality, person. <laughs> per se. But those are my mm-hmm. traditions. And I'm like, maybe... I should investigate why I like it so much. <laughs> yeah, dig deep. Get to the bottom of this. <laughs> oh my god! If you if you want to watch a good romantic comedy that is also holiday related, may I recommend The Holiday? Yeah, uh, I, I just talked you, about this. It's yes, one of my favorites. It's on my so list. good. Thank Listen, you. Do not sleep on Jack Black as a romantic comedy lead. See, that's the thing. <laughs> it take me a moment to really get there because the chemistry seems so friendship like that. I'm like, okay, it builds, it builds. But it still took me a minute to get to that, mm. I think. But they were the more fun couple. Like, they were the couple that I was rooting for the most. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. But there you go. So this See, is, like, I'll, so Bridget, outside my wheelhouse. <laughs> Bridget validated me, and I feel so much better today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we have, like, literally the opposite holiday movie taste, which is nothing wrong with that. But I, that was my first time watching both of those movies. Well, no, I've seen You've Got Me. I, I went through that. But uh, it's been interesting for me. <laughs> Um, (laughs) But Yes, but uh, today we are talking in the ongoing continuing segment about what women are up to on the internet. And by the way, I love, Bridget, that you have like this fancy, to me, fancy headphones mic set up now. You look like you're like in a control center. I know. I feel like I'm taking calls like, 
You yeah. know, I feel very official. I've got the headset, the microphone. It's a little bit yes. like Gwen Stefani. She used to wear the yeah. over his ears and wear the like mic. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Where you would just see yes. a sliver. Mm-hmm. But you know, she was working it because she needed her hands to be free. <laughs> yes. 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 I love it. Um, so who did you bring us to talk about today? Well, today I really wanted to talk about the situation with formerly Google AI engineer Timnet Jebru. Uh, her story is really familiar to me as a Black woman who has worked in tech. Um, it's also kind of infuriating, but also kind of hopeful. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think that we don't really talk enough about the way that women and women of color and Black women are tr- can be treated with like just sort of this like, baseline hostility in certain workplaces, often mm-hmm. tech spaces. And You know, that's not good for anybody in any workplace, whether you are working in a nonprofit or a podcaster or whatever, wherever in between, it's not good for anybody. But especially with tech, when underrepresented voices are treated with hostility, it becomes a big problem for everybody because tech drives so much of our world and so much of our day to day. Right. Um, and I was so excited when you sent this as an email, and maybe because, or as an outline, and maybe because I was following you, and that's where I saw it. But like I think two days before, I went down the rabbit hole of seeing what was happening, why this was such a big conversation, and what was happening to her specifically, and how she was being gaslighted in every turn. Mm. And it's such a phenomenal thing, and it didn't. Nothing would have been corrected had she not spoken out. And and the way Google and their executives have backtracked is almost like a conspiracy theory movie. Like it is <laughs> like it took me like as I was going through this, I was like, oh yes, I, I need to hear all about this. I know Bridget's gonna give me all the information because it is again a bigger problem in what could also be a conversation about performative. Uh, justice in itself, performative uh, social justice. And this is the iconic of like, oh, we're so cool and we're definitely all about putting our black squares and rooting for people, but not in action. So, yes, I'm excited. Absolutely. You're exactly right. I think with this situation, you know, it really makes you ask, like, like, are are these big companies that control so much of our world are they actually meaningfully invested in the communities they say they are? Like you posted your black square, but right. how do you treat the black women who are actually in your employ? Um, right. it's, it's a great question. Uh, so essentially, for folks who don't know, so Timnet Jabru, she is a widely respected leader in AI ethics research. Um, she was really known for co-authoring this groundbreaking paper a couple of years ago that showed that facial recognition software was less accurate when it came to identifying women and people of color. So you might be thinking, well, big deal, who cares? But that means that those, that technologies that use facial recognition software can end up discriminating against women and people of color. If they don't take into account our faces, if, if we're not even being taken into account, then this, this software that is, that is controlling so much of our world will sort of either A, at best, you know, not work for us, B, at worst, create problems for us. You know, right. tech is better when it's created by teams that, look like the people that will be using it. So this study was called Gender Shades, and it revealed the gender and racial biases embedded in commercial facial recognition software. It came out in February of 2018. And listen, I am not going to pretend to be a facial recognition expert. Uh, (laughs) So just, you know, really big caveat that I don't want to say that I, you know, I know what I'm talking about here. Um, But essentially... Facial recognition is being used more and more. And as tech companies sell this software to police departments to help them, you know, track down suspects and things like that, it's pretty clear that if the if this software 
does not work on people of color and women, it's a problem. Like, it's a, it's a big issue for everybody. Right. Yeah, and I, I love... I, there's so many things in our lives I feel that we take for granted that the technology inherent in it um, does have these biases of the people coding it. And that's why I, one of these... The study was such a huge deal. And, like, it, you might not ever think about it too much if, if it works for you or, or it's just, you know... <laughs> when you think about like with the sink recognizing you or the, the automatic faucet, you're just kind of like, oh, you don't put too much thought into these things that like everyday impact right. that they have. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you have, if you are someone like me that has, you know, melanin, darker skin, you probably already know this, but when you go to the airport, those sinks, the like automatic sinks that, you know, just like put out a little bit of soap and water, they don't actually work very well for people who have dark skin. So when I go to the airport, I'm trying to wash my hands. It's a whole ordeal. And it's like one of those things that you don't even, if, if, if you are, if you're not experiencing it regularly, you might not even think about it, right? Another a good example is um, with COVID and everything, one of the things that people suggested pe- that like folks have in their home is a pulse oximeter. And that's that little doodad that you put your finger in and it tells you like how oxygenated your blood is to see how your like airflow is doing. And there was a report that said that those didn't work very well on darker skinned people. So it's like, there are all these little ways I think sometimes, you know, for me, the thing with the bathroom sinks in the airports, it's an annoyance. But if you were to, to, to take that to its ultimate level where it's like, well, what other things don't work for me because I happen to be a Black woman, right? Like, right. what other things am I not, are, were just like not designed with, with me in mind that are going to, at best, make me miss my flight because I couldn't wash my hands? Or at worst, you know, stop me from knowing how much oxygen is in my blood or like criminalize me, right? right. And so... It is such a spectrum that I think that we don't even really think about because it's so it's so coded into everything around us. Right. I mean, absolutely. And it's become, it is a racial issue. It's not just a thing of, oh, that didn't work for me. Boom, let's move on. It's literally like, well, this is how racial profiling begins. You think this is a person of color in the story and don't actually acknowledge who this individual person is. And, and therefore, you have this whole constant tragedies based on misidentification. And then you're using a system that's supposed to be infallible or record, like being sold as being infallible and using by law enforcement who already has a bias to a specific community is really dangerous. So yeah, that report is more than important. It is life-changing, life-saving. Having a, her being a part of that voice, but then also understanding why she's a part of the ethics and why this affects ethics. <laughs> exactly. I'm so glad that you brought up ethics. I think that's something that's easy to be missed where, you know, so so after this report came out, she then went to Google where she worked on AI. And I think, you know, Google is a leader in the AI space, but when you have somebody on your team who is trying to almost whistleblow the ways in which your tech can fail people, tech that you're selling to police departments, tech that you're, you know, using to really build the world around us, someone who is internally saying, hey, we should be asking some tough questions about this technology, about how we're using it, about the ethics of, of its use, about who, who we are selling it to and, to and and what they're using it for. I think that Google probably liked having someone like her on their team when it suited them, when they were able right. to say, oh, we're so diverse. Like, look how look how we are championing our, our Black women on our team. Like, look how great we are. But when that same Black woman was like, well, actually, Google, here are some ways that your tech is used to harm my community. Or here are some ways that your tech is, you know, you maybe need to do some more thinking about. 
it's curious to me, oh, curious in quotes, <laughs> that she was so swiftly forced out and right. so, and like, done, it, it was done, if, if it happened in the way that she described, which I, which I have no reason to believe otherwise, um, cruelly, you know, right. she describes this back and forth via email with her bosses and her being like, well, you know, like, like what are we going to do here? You know, like, if we're not able to get, get on the same page, you know, I might have to resign. And this happening while she was on essentially on vacation right. and coming back from vacation and realizing her email was turned off, right? Like, right. these are, I, I have been kind of unceremoniously pushed out of companies and they are choices that leadership at companies make, right? Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to, you don't have to, even if you're parting ways with a, an employee, you, you, somebody made a choice to, to do it while she was on vacation and have the first step be disabling her work email, you know? Well, I mean, that's an right. ongoing thought for like, anytime my email does not work, my first thought is, did I just get fired? Like, yes! it's like that, that's an automatic. And so this is a ringing a little too uh, to me. <laughs> We have some more for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Can you talk about why exactly she was fired from Google to begin? Or in their words, she resigned, which is untrue but why this happened. Exactly, exactly. So a little bit of background. On Wednesday, December the 2nd, um, she was then the co-lead of Google's ethical AI team. She announced on Twitter that Google had forced her out. And it was a conflict over a a, a different paper than the one that we were just discussing from 2018 um, that she had co-authored at Google. So Jeff Dean, the head of Google AI, told colleagues in an internal memo, which has since been put online, that the paper, quote, didn't meet our bar for publication and that Jebru had said that she would resign unless Google met a number of conditions, which Google was unwilling to meet. She said that she asked to negotiate like an exit date or a last date um, for her employment when she got back from vacation. But during that time, she was cut off from her email. Uh, and so you might be asking like, what exactly could have been in this paper that was so you know horrible that Google had to fire her? Again, I'm not going to pretend that I'm smart enough to summarize the paper itself. However, thankfully, the actual smart people who know what they're talking about at <laughs> MIT Technology Review obtained a copy and summarized it. So they got this copy from one of the paper's co-authors, Emily M. Bender, who is a professor of computational linguistics at the University of Washington. And there's a great summary. Um, if you go to technologyreview.com, you can find it. But a little bit from what they said was in the paper. So one, the paper was getting into AI's negative impacts on things like climate change. So they, they point out that, you know, climate change, as we know, a, a, a big burden of climate change is faced by marginalized and underrepresented people. And so if you are, you know, amassing tons and tons and tons of money to study AI, you could actually be having a negative impact on people who are already negatively impacted by climate change. Um, Another was they were really concerned about AI's use of racist and sexist language biases. Um, This is a little bit like in the weeds, but essentially AI, if you you use, if you base AI on already existing language, like racist or sexist or biased language, that language can be sort of encoded into your AI. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, we, I don't think anybody really, I don't think anybody working at Google sets out to create technology that pushes racist and sexist ideology or biases, but we all have, you know, implicit bias. Like, you don't, like, we don't always know 
where our biases are and or where things that we don't we can't really see are something I might read might I'll be like oh that's fine but somebody else from a different background might read that and say oh actually that's sexist or racist or problematic for X Y Z reason and so when you have teams that aren't able to like look out for this kinds of things because they're not as inclusive as they, as they should be it's a problem right. So one of the co-authors of the study, um, when asked what the goal of the paper was, she says, we are working at a scale where the people building the things can't actually get their arms around the data. And because the upsides are so obvious, it's particularly important to step back and ask ourselves, what are the possible downsides? How do we get the benefits of this while mitigating the risk? And so it sounds like, to me, they were really trying to point out the ways that Google's work in AI could actually be adding to the negative, like, it sounds like they were concerned that AI, that Google's work in AI was actually just adding to negative consequences of in the AI space, as opposed to actually having benefits. And so they were interested in saying like, oh, well, gee, are we able to continue this work while mitigating this risk and these negative factors that AI, that we know can come with AI? Right. There's so many things that just go through my mind. But like on a practical sense, though, it seems like these types of studies, you do want them at the beginning. Why wouldn't you want this more cost efficient to go ahead and nip this in the bud, correct it instead of having a recall and then having lawsuits and then having all of these things that are going to pile up because it's going to happen. Bitch, it's going to happen. Like it's just like an automatic, like obvious. I don't know. Like I just get so upset. Like, this is logical. This is just a logical sense of being. And that's why you hired her. That's why she's doing these studies. Why are you not listening if you have already said she is a professional? This is her specialty. This is why we hired her. Here's her reports. We don't love it because you're calling us out for our mistakes. But the level of narcissism that you would rather come out on top and say, I was right from the beginning, than to understand this is going to cost you way more money in the end. So I'm just like, my mind is blown in how she became a villain to Google. Like like Google sees her as a villain in this situation and she had to be the one to say, hey, no, that's not how that happened. Like it just absolutely baffles me that that's where she had to be. And, and the all other alternative for them was she just leaves and has someone else to come on. And maybe it should be an obvious because it's very political in that sense of, we just want a yes person. Yeah, I think that's, I think, I mean, I as like I am like nodding my head ferociously. I've been in a situation <laughs> where I think that it looks good to have an outspoken critic in the space join Google for to have that kind of coverage to say like, oh well, of course we're worried about we're we're concerned about this at Google. We hired this person who is so outspoken, but then when that person starts asking questions about the organization or asking questions about Google's role in you know perpetuating things that could be harmful. I think that's where people are like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. we wanted you when it made us look good. We don't right. want you if you're going to make us look bad and like ask hard questions, you know? And right. uh, at, at, over at Google, so like their side of the story, Jeff Dean, he shared Google's side of the story. And he said that uh, Jebri and her colleagues only gave Google AI a day to do an internal review of the paper before they were going to submit it to a conference for publication. And so he wrote, quote, our aim is to rival peer-reviewed journals in terms of the rigor and thoughtfulness and how we review research before publication. However, William Fitzgerald, a former Google PR manager, said, no, 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 that's not true. (laughs) Don't buy this. On Twitter, he said, this is such a lie. It was part of my job on the Google PR team to review these papers. Typically, we got so many that we didn't even review them in time or a researcher would just publish and we wouldn't know until afterward. 
we, all caps, never punished people for not doing proper process. So it does seem like something is going on, right? Like both of these things can't be true. It can't be true that the only issue was that we were concerned about the review process. We didn't have enough time to review it. Therefore, we weren't able to, to, to have them publish it. And that Google never requires this kind of, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, intense review. Yes, scrutiny. And it just really makes me ask, you know, was she, was her paper getting a different kind of scrutiny than the other kinds of paper that Google was putting out? Right. And it's particularly frustrating, too, because we have heard of this environment at Google of sexual harassment and toxicity on top of all this, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Let me just be really clear. Google has had a very big problem with sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. And something that's even more kind of disgusting is that sometimes they actually, in their own words, gift the harassers huge sums of money. So last year, more than 20,000 Google employees around the world walked out of the company's office to protest the fact that Google had paid out over $100 million to multiple executives accused of sexual harassment in the workplace. Google paid out a total of $105 million to Andy Rubin and Amit Signal after they were accused of sexual harassment at the company. So this is from TechCrunch. The suit, which was filed by a shareholder, James Martin, confirms that the board of directors approved a $90 million exit package for Rubin as a, quote, goodbye present for him. No mention, of course, was made about the true reason for his resignation, his egregious sexual harassment while at Google. So it's interesting that, you know, if you... If you write a paper and go through a review process that Google doesn't like, you are mm-hmm. terminated or you're you're forced out in this like wildly disrespectful way. If you sexually harass your coworkers, they'll give you millions of dollars as a gift. <laughs> well, that's the double whammy. Once again, that performative bullshit of them saying, yes, we definitely got rid of the person. We would not stand for sexual harassers in our uh, community but we're going to give them lots of money because, you know, we want them to still like us. Like, that's that whole performative justice shit that is constant in these types of organizations. And for those they hoped would remain silent, boy, were they wrong. Thank goodness they were wrong. But they really thought they could just silence people and be m- just move on with it. And that's like the bigger picture of what she's done. She's kind of like, uh... No. On top of the fact that the performative stuff is like, we're going to have a conference. And I read this, that they were trying to have a Zoom conference and have people answering questions so you could all be on the same page and just be, you know, really transparent without her presence. So answering for the woman they fired. Like, that's just a whole other level of how stupid can you get (laughs) in trying to fix things? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like everything they've done has been a bit of a misstep. And <laughs> honestly, kudos to her for not it's it would be so it would be so much easier for her to be silent, to not say anything, to not speak up. And and honestly, kudos to her for for choosing a different path. And yeah, so she actually addressed sort of exactly what you were talking about on Twitter. She wrote, "If you talk about toxic workplace conditions, a lot of leaders will want you out." If a lot of leaders want you out, they will find a way to make it happen. If you're a harasser, that's not the case. A lot of leaders will be A-OK with you being around. And I think that really, like, just goes, I mean, that's the name of the game. And and I think, like, I don't know if y'all remember a few, like, back in the summer when so many different people were being pushed out of their jobs because they were, they had a history of racism or sexism. Um, It seems like every day we woke up and somebody else was getting fired. When those people get resigned, I do think it's important to ask follow-up questions of, 
well, they're resigning, but do they still get stock options? Are they, mm-hmm. what's their resignation pack? Are they, like, are they getting, are they, what is their finance, like, are you severing all financial ties with this person? And what does that look like? It's so right. easy to see the headline that's like, oh, racist boss is, is fired from company. But then asking that question of, well, do they get, like, what's their exit package look like? You know, do they, right. do they, are they, are they getting paid out lots of money, money that could go to, you know, hiring more inclusive folks on your team? Like, what does it look like? I think really asking those questions is really important. Right. And honestly, I feel like Google is a prime example of saying they're going to make change and this is where we were. You know what I mean? Like, if like from after Ferguson be like, we're going to make change. Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. We agree. And here we are today to nothing's really changed. And we're kind of sorry, but not really. Like, that's, it feels like, I mean, we've been talking about this for a minute because, um, uh, you know, when we talk about voter suppression and listening to black women, it's a constant focus and constant conversation for the last six months. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, just because we're seeing it now doesn't mean things have changed. And we've this is kind of like a replay, almost like an election. Every four years we come to this and it's still the same BS. Yeah. You know, and, and it's happening in technology as well. And and I, I can't remember what it was, but I just saw the Pinterest art, um, article lawsuit. Mm-hmm. The Pinterest lawsuit, and it's like perfectly hand in hand in which the white CEO woman came and filed on behalf of herself and two specific black women who are a part of the company and talked about it. And she got awarded millions of dollars and they got severance. They got, it's, exactly, <laughs> they got severance. And she is clear that these black women who spoke yeah. up about being mistreated at Pinterest, they were the ones who paved the way for her to be able to, to, file this suit successfully. And and I do think like keeping an eye on who gets a big payout and who doesn't. And, you know, I I think we'll talk about this um, going forward in the episode, but, you know, it's so important. Like I said earlier, it is so important that people, women speak up when they are mistreated, that they don't, that, you know, we use our voice, but we also cannot deny the very real fact that Doing that comes with a cost, right. you know, and it's it's interesting to me who has to bear the brunt of that cost because we know that when you speak up, when you blow the whistle, when you are honest about something that's happening to you, when you're honest about in work or anywhere, it, it's not it's not easy, and I think it's harder for people who are already marginalized. You know, the expectations are so low for those you know privileged people, and that that's. The understanding is that because the expectations are so low, they're rewarded so quickly, so easily. And that's in itself such a crime to me. Like, I, I'd say it like that because it's the most upsetting. Like, this is where the, you know, social worker, juvenile justice person, been like, I'm enraged, this is, you know, because you <laughs> see what's happening and you do, there's nothing you can do because it's a systemic thing. Once again, when we try to explain, having to explain over and over again why you sit here and you compliment the white men for doing the minimal, meaning I trust women. <gasps> oh, I, my God. oh, my God. Give them an award. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then the black women sitting out here doing the work, going into the constant, being a part of the abuse and constant uh, harassment. But they're like, but they, you know, the conversation is they kind of ask for it because, you know, they're putting themselves in the limelight. Like, that's the conversation you have. You're like, what the hell is this conversation in itself that we have to? We have these hurdles again, and I know this seems so simple. The fact that that this is the level that we're still at this point, and people can't grasp it. I mean, and it's the bigger question. So, what does all of this mean, especially for women of color in tech? What is 
And how do you unravel this? I'm getting really passionate. Can you tell about my voice? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy. I, I am right there with your passion. I think that we really need to have some tough conversations and the kind of conversations that you're that you are sparking right now. I think that we do need to ask, you know, when someone who is more privileged steps up, are, are they being rewarded in a different way than someone who is less privileged? Um, I also think just the reality is, is that for a lot of women of color in all workplaces, not just tech, this is a common story. Um, I've definitely experienced, I've not experienced what she's going through, but I've experienced right. similar things. There is this really, really um, great uh, comic or like graphic that I love that you might've seen on Twitter called the quote problem woman of color in the workplace that I think describes this uh, system that I've heard quite a bit about where, you know, a woman of color in the nonprofit space will get hired there's going to be a brief honeymoon phase where everyone is so excited that she's there. And then if she starts calling out, you know, negative things happening within the organization or on the team, then she is sort of swiftly pushed out. And I think that is such a common, that is a tale as old as time. I think that we really need to have some tough conversations about, you know, how we are, how we are supporting women of color in workplaces because, you know, there's this, this phrase I love you know, uh, diversity is being is is being invited to a dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance, right? Like, there's a difference. It's like having a seat at the table is great, but it's not enough if you can't use your voice, if you're not supported, if when you do try to use your voice, you are punished for it, you're fired mm -hmm. for it, you're retaliated against for it. And it doesn't even have to be that explicit. It can just be a, cult, a culture that makes you feel boxed out and not supported. And so all of these folks who are, who, who are, you know, rah-rah, gung-ho about hiring women and folks of color on their teams, don't just hire them. Make sure they feel comfortable and supported to use their voice, to speak up, to do their jobs. Make sure they get the, the support and training and coaching they need, whatever it is they need. Make sure they have the funding they need. Just thinking that you, that because you have Black folks or women or folks of color at the table, that that's all, that it ends there because it certainly right. does not. And that's, Tokenism. So we won't go into that. But like, yeah, I, I'm just thinking of all of the times because when you talk about uh, the, the cartoon, the, the graphic that you were talking about, I don't know why, but it came to mind about the uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the reunion, in which hey. they had the old Aunt Viv on. And she had that conversation. Ooh. It was like, you labeled me a difficult black woman. And that literally cast me out. And Girl. like X me out. And like, yeah, right. I know you feel about that. <laughs> but the thing is, like, but that's the truth of it all. And I've seen this happen many a times, especially in my industry where I was working in the Department of Juvenile Justice, which is like majority black community because that is who they are. They want to care for their people and they know those are the ones that are being ostracized to be in that justice system, like being abused within that justice system. So that's what I've seen. And just watching the language and people talking about other Black women and the little keywords, what they're really, truly meaning to say and how it ostracizes and blacklists individuals. And that's exactly what's happening in this industry as well. She became difficult, quote unquote, because she had questions or because she wanted accountability. And it's such a thing that's like, it's mind-blowing to me that people can't recognize it immediately. Of course, I say this because... It is the internalized racism that they cannot get, let go of. And then the misogynoir of it all is mm -hmm. that they are not having support from their own community at times. Absolutely. I, ugh, this would be, this would be like a two hour long podcast. First of all, 
yes to everything you said about Janet Huber, a.k.a. (laughs) the first mom on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, justice for Janet Huber. Um, But you're exactly right. You know, I I would never call another woman of— there are certain words I would never use for another woman of color in public, Mm -hmm. right? I would never call another woman of color aggressive because Mm -hmm. I just know how how that language is weaponized against us so that what we have to say or, or— like, what we have to say no longer matters, right? right. Like, we are no right. longer a three-dimensional human being. We are a caricature. And so there are certain things that I would, I would never, you know, call another woman of color in public because it's just like, it's not, it's, 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 it is creating a, it's creating a situation where she can't win. Like, she's no, right. like, it doesn't matter what she says. She'll never be able to win. And that sounds ex- exactly what's happening at Google. Right. You know, uh, Jeb Rue said that she, you know, Google sort of apologized for firing her in a company-wide memo, kind of, but she's completely not buying it. And she says that they're trying to paint her out to be an angry Black woman. She said, they paint me as this angry Black woman because they put you in this terrible workplace. And if you speak up about it, then you become a problem. And then they start talking about de-escalation strategies. You write emails, they get ignored. You write documents, they get ignored. You discuss how it's being done, and they talk about you as if you're some kind of angry Black woman who needs to be contained. And I've been there. Like, once someone writes you off as an angry Black woman or aggressive or, you know, any number of f***ed up terms that we have to diminish women and what they say, people can't see you. It's like, it's like, you, it's like it, it completely muzzles anything that you could possibly ever say. It's just like no one is ever able to, to take you seriously again. And I think that's exactly what she's calling out here. And even, even in so calling it out, it's a huge risk because it's right. like, oh, well, She's, they apologize. Like, what else, what else does she want? Like, she, she won't be satisfied with anything. You know, it's like, it's such a vicious cycle. Oh, and talking about like her being pushed out. She wasn't even pushed out. They said she resigned, which was a complete falsehood from jump. Like, that was my favorite part of this is like, they said she resigned, whatever. And she's like, no, you pushed me out. Like, you essentially fired me on, again, as you said, most disrespectful way that could possibly have happened by just cutting me out of the system without talking about negotiations, without talking about terms, without talking about any of those things. And it's such a whole thing. And then trying to turn it around and say, no, but she quit. We didn't do it. She did it. Like, 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 she turned the system off herself. It's just kind of this whole level of gaslighting within a multi-billion dollar company that is like, are you kidding me? Are you a 25-year-old boyfriend that's trying to run away? (laughs) Google, the 25-year-old boyfriend (laughs) just trying to get away. Sorry, babe, I'm just really bad at reading texts. (laughs) We've all had that boyfriend. Yes. We do have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So how can we take uh, Jay Brew's experience here as a Black woman in technology and extrapolate that out? That's a great question. So one of the things I, I I talked about a little bit earlier, but I just want to make sure it's like super clear is that I think what's happening to her is really awful. It's not just awful because d- Google is disrespecting somebody who is like really respected in the AI space, but it's bad for everybody. You know, that hostility toward not just Black women, but I think a lot of underrepresented people that I think is at the core of tech has negative implications for all of us because technology that's used for everybody should be built by everybody. And so when tech companies 
are hostile to underrepresented voices, when they push underrepresented voices out and don't support them, that means fewer of those voices are going to go on to shape the technology and the platforms and the systems that really and truly do run our world. It's like the systems that meet, that like help you get your Uber or, or like get your Instacart groceries to your house, to the systems that, you know, surveil you when you go outside of your house, you know, these systems are built by people, right? And so we like to believe this fairy tale that technology is, is, is neutral, but technology that is built by people can't be neutral. And so the less people who are, who are supported and are retained in the technology space, the less people we will have working on these technologies. And like I said, you know, at, the, at best, if these systems are not built for us, for everybody, at best, they might annoy you, like those, you know, faucets that don't work for me in the airport. But at worst, they can really perpetuate harm on communities that are already marginalized. And so I always tell people this, that it's not just, we don't just need to build inclusive teams and in tech because it's nice, a nice thing to do. We need to build it because it's critical, because this technology really does have the power to, to drive our world. And so if it's not being built with everybody in mind, you know, what kind of harm is, is it perpetuating? And so really kind of getting clear on that, I think it's really key. And also just sort of speaking about um, what I was talking about earlier about how, you know, there is a cost to being the, the woman who speaks up. I, I really applaud anybody who whistleblows at an organization or, or goes against the grain at the organization when something, when something bad is happening. But that, those things cannot go without a cost. And right. I think for women like uh, Timnet Jabru, you know, she is no longer employed, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, one of my mentors in tech, uh, Sabrina Hersey Issa, she runs, she's a, a human rights technologist and a complete and total badass. Uh, but she runs an organization called Be Bold Media. And she started this thing called the Bold Prize, where she is trying to give monetary gifts to women who are pushed out of organizations for things like whistleblowing. Um, there's a really powerful story about how she got started doing this work with the, with the um, Bold Prize. If you are interested, there's a great episode of my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, all about it. But essentially, way back when, when um, MIT was found to have this uh, financial relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, who we know was a serial sexual abuser, at the time, MIT was giving out this prize called the Disobedience Award, right? And so this was this prize that was given to people in tech who break the rules, who are courageous, who disobey. And, you know, one year they gave it to the creators of Me Too in STEM, who, you know, were calling out sexual harassment in technology, in science. And so after this whole thing came out with the financial relationship that MIT had with Jeffrey Epstein, Sabrina thought, well, why should MIT get to be the arbiters of who has courage and who doesn't? They didn't right. act very courage, like, courageous. Mm -hmm. They, don't, they shouldn't be the ones who are deciding, you know, who is acting morally and who is not. And so she started uh, the Bold Prize as a rival to the Disobedience Award so that, you know, it, we didn't have to only see organizations that perpetuate harm and, and, and perpetuate the status quo as the ones who were the, also the arbiters of who was courageous and who wasn't. And so this year's recipient, one of them is Timnet Jabru. And so if you mm -hmm. want awesome. to donate money uh, to this crowdfunding campaign, you can go to boldprize.com. Um, I've already given money. I think it's a great cause. And I think it also just uh, highlights the fact that when you are someone who is a trailblazer or you practice public courage or public, you know, 
public boldness, it sometimes comes with a financial cost and it shouldn't, right? It shouldn't be this hard for people to do the right thing. Right. I mean, essentially this could have cost her career had she not spoken up and was just told she was wrong and her data was wrong. That could have cost her so much credibility in itself. And I love that it's MIT who has a history of being sexist and racist in their own like college admissions and stuff that I'm like, Really? Like you're the one who's gonna be the you know arbitrator of morality? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, why should we accept that? That's like, like, like you, you guys don't, you don't know. Like, why should we trust you to say, like, oh, these people are courageous. Give them money. It's like obvious you can't be trusted in that department. Right. I just think it's funny, and I think like also just reading through her comments and the people commenting on her and the people feeling the freedom to tell her thank you for those who she actually personally helped at Google or those just hearing her stories and feeling seen. Like she has opened up so much more, which is always the good side, the good feel side, of course. But then the, again, the financial cost, the credibility, what could have happened, what can't happen, the fact that she's jobless, all these things, it doesn't necessarily weigh that out. But it was incredible to see the influence that she has with people all over the world who have uh, been through similar situations at a smaller scale or maybe a bigger scale, but they were just quiet. Like they, they didn't have the courage or they didn't have the fortitude to move, come forward or maybe they just didn't have like, like I think so, at certain points, it's not necessarily that you're just being courageous. You just are f- like fed the f- up. Like, yes, that's yes. not what it comes down to. Like, I'm tired. I'm done. Nah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I think that sometimes, it just goes to show that like, when like systems might fail us, institutions might fail us, but really we are all we have. You know, community, other women, those have been the things that really sustain me. And it's it's not surprising to me that as these institutions continue to fail women, um, we have each other's back, right? And I think like, exactly. And yeah, maybe maybe people who speak up, it's not a calculated, courageous thing. Maybe you're just like, you know what? I got <laughs> time today, you know? <laughs> I, I got something to say. <laughs> Yes. I love it. Um, are there any other uh, resources you want to shout out or anything else you want to end on before we wrap up? I would just say, like, please go to boldprize.com if you are interested in helping out with the crowdfunding campaign for Bold Prize. And if you're interested in more information, check out There Are No Girls on the Internet, uh, the episode about um, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Ottawa and Boya. Uh, fun fact, most people credit uh, Ronan Farrow with being the reason why uh, Jeffrey Epstein's connection to MIT was, you know, eventually publicized. Not so. He did a great service in publishing, but Ottawa Mboya actually published it first. She was just a first-year grad student at MIT. So typically there is an, in, like a, a, where, where there's an interesting man doing something courageous, if you look hard enough, sometimes mm-hmm. there's a woman who did it first. Who got uh, <laughs> silenced and didn't get the credit. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. All about giving women credit here. Um, well, thank you as always for joining us, Bridget. Where can the good listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at Bridget Marie or on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. Yes, and definitely go check out Bridget's podcast and check her out online. Uh, always getting the information from you, Bridget. You, you keep me up to date on things, Love so it. I really do appreciate you it. Bring out the fire. I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Yes, let's burn this <laughs> down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, don't get me started. <laughs> yes, I can't wait for the next episode. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You or on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Oh, thanks. 
And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.